Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and uh, this morning we're going to be finishing up our sermon series called Resurrection. We've been sitting uh, in kind of Peter's view of the resurrection for the last four weeks, and so this morning we're going to be going over to 1 Peter chapter 1. So go ahead and grab your Bible. Let's flip over to 1 Peter 1. If you don't have a Bible, not a problem. Grab one off the chair around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 1014, 1014 to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, this is the last week in our series. We've spent the last four weeks looking at the resurrection through the eyes of Peter. And so we kind of started out by looking at the triumphal entry um, and and experiencing the joy and and the anticipation of Peter as as he uh, walked in to Jerusalem behind Jesus and the crowds were singing praise of of, uh, Hosanna in the highest. And, And then we stood with him in shock and sorrow as Jesus was betrayed on uh, that Thursday evening, um, as Judas led um, the temple guard into the garden to betray Jesus, we experienced with him the even greater shock and sorrow when he saw the betrayal of his own heart, and he realized that he stood with Judas the betrayer, not with Jesus the faithful. We saw him on Sunday morning race to the tomb when he found out that the tomb was empty and and saw him and experienced with him as he ran in and and saw the the empty grave clothes and it started dawning on him what that could possibly mean. And last week we walked with him on a beach as the risen Jesus walked with him and confronted his betrayal and comforted him with grace and commissioned him again to the gospel. To carry it forward. So this morning we're going to be jumping about 30 years ahead. Um, 30 years into the future, we're looking at Peter's first epistle. So at this point, Peter has, has um, preached the gospel and um, uh, the church has exploded and in fact persecution has uh, arisen in the church and as a result the believers were being scattered out into the surrounding areas and he is writing this letter to to guide them comfort them and lead them uh, during this period of suffering and so um, we're going to be looking at first peter 1 verses 3 through 6 I want to remind you last week we kind of started a call and response uh, over the last six years when i finished reading the scripture i would say the word of the lord and and for some of you that that seemed a, a little confusing. You weren't sure why I did it, and others of you were confused why we didn't finish it, um, because it is a call and response. And so we're going to round it out, okay? We're, we're bringing the liturgy full circle, and, and so after I finish reading, I'm just coaching you here. I'm going to say the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, good job. All right, here we go. We're looking at First Peter 1, starting in verse 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The word of the Lord. Well done. Well, there we go. We're getting there. We're getting there. We'll keep, we'll keep going. All right, you guys. So our text is, is uh, about 30 years after where we left off last week. Peter is, 
is amazingly still preaching the same message. You can have hope because Jesus has risen from the grave. 30 years later, 30 years of suffering, 30 years of ministry, 30 years of difficulty, 30 years of blessing, he is still coming back to this simple message. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you can have hope. And not just any hope, he uses a a powerful phrase here. You can have a living hope. I love that phrase. Love that phrase. It is so full of meaning and significance. There's power in it. So I want to take a minute and I want to talk a little bit about hope to kind of help us uh, frame our understanding. Uh, Put a picture up of uh, my dog. This is Bear. Uh, Bear is a Labrador and uh, he's a full bred and uh, Labradors are in the Retriever family and, and what that means is that he lives to play fetch. Like he has no greater joy in life than going and getting things and bringing them back. I mean, that's it, man. I mean, that is his, he loves that more than eating. He loves it more than, than, than being petted. He loves it more than, than anything. He, he lives to retrieve, right? And this is exactly how he looks at anything that I might throw, right? And he'll come and drop something at my feet, and then he just stands there, right? It can be a ball, it can, it can be a bone, it can be a rope, it can be one of my kids' stuffed animals when they were younger, it can be a small child. It doesn't matter. He is obsessed, right? He's intense, he is focused, he is, in that moment, both relaxed and incredibly tense because he's so focused, Everything else is tuned out. I've tried, like, like in that moment, try and tempt him with, with bacon. Mm-mm. Nope. Banana bread. My dogs love banana bread more than they love meat. Nope. Nope. Small animals. Let a rabbit run by. It doesn't matter. He is absolutely focused on that. It reminds me of the meme that, that's floating around on social media, right? Some of you are like, I wish I had someone who would look at me the same way that dog looks at that ball right? Just intently looking at me, focused on me. I can tell you from experience, you really don't. Um, It's exhausting, right? Because it's all he thinks about, right? He is continually uh, bringing his toy or whatever and dropping it in my lap or dropping it under my feet. As I move through the house, he is continually hovering around me. He follows me. He gets under my feet. And if I stop moving, he drops whatever he's got right in front of my feet and then just stands there intense, staring at it, you know, willing me to pick it up and, and throw it. And if I do, man... That's the end because then, then, then he just knows game is on, right? So it's a bit like having my own personal stalker. It is not, um, it is, it is, it is not lovely, but it is a good illustration of hope. It is a good illustration of hope. You guys, listen. Hope is the eager anticipation of something good. Just to define the term, hope is that, that sense of eager anticipation of something good right? It is where expectation and desire take root and grow into joy. When, when Bear is focused on that ball, he is full of that anticipation. So much so that he is fully relaxed to the surrounding world and fully intent on what he's focused on. That's hope. And we all like that. We, we all have some ball that we're chasing. 
We all have some hope that we are pursuing. We all have some goal that is in front of us. We are creatures of hope. We can't help but hope. We are created in hope for hope, and as a result, hope drives our lives. And even if you're like, no, man, I'm so jaded, I don't have any hope, whatever. You have a hope that you'll never hope again, whatever. You have hope because we're all driven by it. We all have something that is in front of us that we focus on, that, that anchors us, right? And, and here's the thing, man. We all know the power of hope. We really do, right? Hope is, has a way of, of making hard things easier. Hope has a way of making heavy things lighter. I mean, you guys know what it's like when you have something to look forward to at the end of the day, right? Like you got something exciting coming up on the weekend or, or, or that evening, right? You get up and you're not as exhausted. In fact, you might even be like a little eager. You haven't even had your coffee yet, and you're human, right? It has a way of of giving you energy and and, and giving you some vibrancy, right? Traffic isn't as annoying, and work isn't as hard, and and people aren't as stupid, and and, and you just find yourself more patient and more tolerant and, and more pleasant because hope has a way of of filling in all the spaces with the anticipation of its joy. That's why we love it, you guys. We love that delicious anticipation, man. We just love that sense of, of, of something good about to be fulfilled, that, that combination of yearning and, 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 and the, the joy of anticipation, right? It, it is both joy and pain. It's a, it's a, it's a sense of, of, of a foretaste of the fulfillment, but a yearning for the fulfillment. We love it. We need it. And so we chase it. But we all know that horrible feeling that happens when you have a hope and it disappoints. You know, when you're anchored on that, on, on the ball and I don't kick it, right? That's Bear's continual disappointment in life. But when, but when we anchor our hope, when, we, when what we're pursuing and, and looking for doesn't doesn't come through, and all the tension of anticipation turns into disappointment, sadness. Here's the thing, you guys. Hope is beautiful in its experience and wonderful in its fulfillment, and it is tragic in its disappointment. Sometimes you'll, you'll be so anchored and so focused on some hope, and when it doesn't come through, I mean, this is, I'm convinced that some of the deepest pains we'll experience in life will come from disappointed hopes. When you wanted something so bad, when your entire being was focused on its fulfillment, and it didn't come through. It didn't happen. The path of most of our lives is littered with the corpses of dead hopes. Hopes that lit us up and then let us down. Hopes that drove us forward and then didn't give us anywhere to go. Things or people or circumstances that we place our expectation of some desired good on, where we desired some blessing and that blessing didn't come through. And here's the thing, each one of those disappointed 
hopes left a wound. And the greater the hope, the more painful the disappointment. So as a result, some are just aches, right? They're just aches. They're, they're memories of what could have been. Some of them are, are, are the real piercing pains of regret, feelings of shame and failure. Some are, are open, and they provoke us to anger because they're connected to feelings of betrayal or having been defrauded of something we deserved and needed. See, that's the thing with dead hopes. They don't go away. You don't keep traveling your journey and leaving them behind. You, you carry them with you in the wounds and in the scars that they leave. You guys, this is why we desperately need a living hope. This is why we desperately need a new transcendent kind of hope. Take a look again at verse 3, just kind of starting in the middle of the verse. It says, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So just kind of simplify, catch what He's saying. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you have a living hope. Right? So there's a word play here. He's being clever with the language. Jesus came back to life, so you have a hope that is full of life. But, but as clever as the Greek is and as clever as the language is here, I don't think Peter is being clever. I think he's opening his heart and inviting us in to what is the heart of his experience. Here's the thing, you guys. Peter remembered when his hope died when his hope was betrayed and his hope was led in captivity and his hope was mocked and abused and scourged and his hope was crucified. He remembered when his hope in himself was crushed. That Thursday night when he saw himself betray his friend and his master. He felt his hope die on Friday as he saw Jesus nailed to the cross, crucified, dying. That Saturday, after Jesus was buried, had to be one of the darkest days Peter or any human has ever experienced. Because he had left it all, you guys. He, for the hope of following Jesus, he had left his job, he had left his career, he had left his reputation, he had left his family to follow Jesus because of hope, right? He, he anticipated that Jesus would deliver him and the entire nation into freedom. It was hope. He had an expectation, he had an anticipation of a, of a good. But it wasn't just disappointment about his own personal loss that plagued him, I think, on that Saturday. It was the disappointment of, 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 of confusion. Of, of Here's the thing, man. Peter was the first one to confess that Jesus was the Christ. Peter was the first disciple to, to say, man, you are the anointed one of God. You are the hero of the human story. You are God's appointed deliverer. And Jesus said, you're right, Peter. On this rock, I will build my people, my church, my called out ones. And yet, the anointed one is now dead and in the grave. 
So Saturday, Peter was sitting in that crushing disappointment, feeling the open wounds of his regret and his sorrow and, and I'm sure even anger, wrestling with the fundamental question, how can this be and how could this have happened? And then Sunday morning, Sunday morning, he hears the report, man, hey, the, the tomb is empty. And filled with, with I think, dawning belief and, and disbelief, wonder, and it can't be, he runs to the tomb and runs inside and sees the empty grave clothes, and it starts dawning on him. Faith starts emerging, this idea, man, could it really mean that the impossible has happened. That Jesus came back to life. And it only got better from there. Because Jesus then meets with him personally and cleanses him in a sense through this conversation of his shame and and, and removes his guilt and commissions him to, to ministry and repeats the initial invitation that he gave him. At the very beginning when he met Peter, he's like, Peter... Follow me, man. And once again, Jesus is like, follow me. Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. His hope came back to life with the resurrection of Jesus. It was a living hope. Because Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter's perspective on life was absolutely and irreversibly changed. He had a living hope. And the living hope was based in God's mercy, and it would drive him toward an inheritance. So Peter in this passage explains why the resurrection of Jesus was such good news, right? Looking back now, all Peter sees is mercy, right? Take again, look at verse 3 at how it begins. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope according to his great mercy. Here's the thing. If Jesus rose from the dead for himself, that would have been great news. That would have meant that the greatest tragedy of human history, that an innocent, perfectly innocent man had died, had, had born, that, that he was brought back to life. It would have reversed one of the greatest injustice or the greatest injustice human history has ever seen. It would have been great news for Jesus to come back from the dead, but it wouldn't have necessarily been great news for us. It's only great news to us because he rose from the dead for us, not just for himself. Because Jesus died for my guilt, he then rose to give me his glory. He went into the grave as my substitute and he came out as my hero. And when I believe in Jesus, I receive mercy. As a, as a gift of mercy, the text says that he has caused me to be born again. Now, it's an interesting phrase. Um, being born again is not something we do for God. It is something God does in and for us. When you're born... I don't know if you've thought about it. It's really not something you do. It is something that is done to you. 
and something that is done for you, right? Somebody else bears the discomfort and the pain, and you receive the benefit. That's what it means to be born, right? This phrase, born again, gets a little bit confusing for us today, though, because Christians have kind of jacked it up. Um, we, we have created this weird thing that we call a born-again Christian, as if there could actually be any other kind of Christian. And what we mean by that in our subculture is often that it's speaking of a specific kind of Christian who holds certain political or social views. And, uh, and as a result, it gets kind of confusing. I worked at a Christian school for a season, and, and while I was working there, one time I was giving a family a tour of the school, and, and I was showing them the, the facilities, and I was talking about the curriculum, and we were discussing the teachers, and they really liked it, man. I was selling them well, and, and, and they, were, they were enjoying the tour, and they were excited about what's happening, and we get to the end of the tour, and, and she looks at me, and she says, I, I, I appreciate all of this, man, and I get it all. I just have one last question. Just how born again are you guys? The question makes no sense. Now, it does when you understand what she means. What she means is, is how much of an embodiment of this Christian subculture that is married to a very political part of the Christian movement. You know, they, they measure themselves by how well they vote and which social issues they find important and the rest of that. How aligned are you with this political subculture? That's what she was asking. But the question itself makes no sense because biblically, Being born again has absolutely nothing to do with your political affiliation or your stance on social issues. Being born again describes something God did for you and did in you, right? It's not like you're like, hey, happy birthday. How born are you this year? It doesn't make sense. It's a question that, that completely mystifies when you understand what's actually being described. When you believe in Jesus, he performs a miracle in you. That's called regeneration or, or being born again. You aren't the same person you were before you believed in Jesus. Who you were in Christ was crucified with Christ. Who you are now is covered with the resurrection life of Christ. You are a new creature in Christ. You have been born again. It's a very real spiritual transformation that is a gift to us when we believe by His mercy He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So when you look back, like I'm sure Peter did, and see failure or shame or disappointment, Remember the resurrection. Because now when Peter looks back, he doesn't see his shame. He sees God's mercy. When he looks back, he doesn't see his failure. He sees God's mercy. When he looks back, he doesn't doesn't relive the, the pain of his own brokenness. He relives the joy of Christ's resurrection. He sees God's mercy. When you see your past through the lens of your living hope, it transforms the way you see your own story, your own failures, your own successes. It's all mercy. It's God's 
mercy. I am not defined or enslaved by my failures, my shame, or my guilt. Because Jesus rose that I might receive mercy. And in receiving mercy, I might find a new identity. I might be born again into a new and living hope. Not based on my performance, but based on His. Not, not because I've accomplished it, or, or I have worked really hard, or I've become religious, or I've improved myself, but because He rose from the dead. I am covered in His righteousness, and I have been given mercy. So when I look back, I see mercy. And when I look ahead, I see blessing. Take a look at verses, verse 4, but 3 and 4 together again. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So when I look back, all I see is mercy. And when I look ahead, all I see is blessing. Because I have an inheritance, an incredible, glorious inheritance that is mine because I am Christ's. I am a new creature in Christ, and as a result, have been being covered in the righteousness of Christ, I am now co-heirs with Christ. That's what Scripture says. I have an inheritance. So what is the inheritance? His. Everything He is and everything He has. All the fullness of God's blessing. All of it. That's your inheritance. All that Christ is and all that Christ has. All the fullness of His character, His beauty, His his excellence. And all the expression of His creativity. Of His kingdom building. Of His righteousness and justice. It's all there. Everything that Jesus is and everything that He has, it is a limitless storehouse of God's goodness follower of Christ, believer in Christ, you have an inheritance. I mean, let that sink in. It's yours. And it is everything. I love good stories, and I love reading, and I recently reread the the Harry Potter series. Um, Kind of a fun series. Um, but Harry Potter starts off as, a, as an orphan, being raised by uh, his wicked aunt and uncle, and he's living in a cupboard, and uh, he's under the stairs. And, and uh, so the beginning of the story is awesome, uh, because like all good stories, it begins with your hero just being undervalued and abused, and, and, and then suddenly he starts getting these crazy letters telling him that he is, in fact, somebody special, somebody that he didn't know he was. And I think in many ways we're drawn to these stories because there is in each one of us that sense of being orphaned, this sense of, of we have been, I don't know, separated from our true identity, that there is in a sense a great blessing for us out there. And one of the most powerful scenes in the early chapters of this first novel is when Harry Potter is taken to Gringotts, which is this 
magical vault of all of these treasures, and he is taken into this vault where he realizes that in this vault are all the treasures his mom and his dad left for him. That though he was orphaned, they had given him an inheritance. And I think in each one of us, there is that sense that, that we would love to, uh, we identify with that, we would love to get, I mean, who wouldn't want to get an inheritance? You know what I'm saying? Like suddenly you get a letter in the mail and, and it's not, you know, from Africa in broken English. Like it's a real letter, you know, it's not just like, hey, the, you know, respond to this email and we'll hook you up with your, no, it's like real, like, like somebody really, really famous, man, was, was your, your uh, relative and, and they knew about you, you didn't know about them and they left you this incredible inheritance, man. We would all love that. And part of us would all be like, I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. I always had this expectation, right? But what's even better than the financial windfall? What's even better than the prosperity? For like, for like Harry Potter, when he walks into this vault, when he picks these things up, they're not just monetarily valuable. These are things that were set aside specifically by his mother and his father for him. These are things that his father chose to leave for him. His mother touched these things and set them aside for him. See, an inheritance is way, way more than just the personal blessing and prosperity. It's security. It's history. It's identity. It's future. It's this sense of being tied to a story greater than my own. It's a, it's a history of love and a familial tie. Your father has laid up an inheritance for you, for you. Not, not just some anonymous pile of goodness. <laughs> it is an inheritance custom designed for you. It's yours. And it's waiting for you right now. Like, this isn't Harry Potter. This isn't fiction. This isn't the power of positive thinking. This is the revelation of the Word of God. You have an inheritance set aside by your Father for you. I want you to pay attention to how hard Peter is working to explain how secure this inheritance is, right? Take a look again. Verse 4, man, to an inheritance, right? You've got this living hope that leads you to, to look forward to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Unlike earthly treasure, it won't fade, right? The, Inheritances during this period of time um, would have been any number of things, but usually things associated with family wealth and family identity. And so you're talking about things like gold and silver, which can tarnish. You're talking about things that, that could have personal value, which can fade and, and rot. You're talking about cloth. During this period of time, cloth was, was a sign of great wealth. That's why kings wore purple. 
um, because purple cloth was very, very expensive to make. They had to hand dye all of their cloth. And so you would have these, these, these piles of cloth that were part of the inheritance. But, but they could rot. They could fade. They could deteriorate. Right? There could be any number of things like oils and perfumes that were of great value that could spoil. Unlike earthly treasure, your inheritance won't fade, it won't rot, it won't decrease in value. And it's kept in heaven for you. <laughs> it's like the most secure vault ever. Right? It's kept in heaven for you. Unlike earthly treasure, it isn't vulnerable to thieves or to swindlers or to the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms or temporal economies. Your inheritance is guarded because you are loved. Your inheritance is guarded by the very power of God. Your Father who set your inheritance apart for you. Your inheritance is secure. What's awesome is that it's not just your inheritance that's being guarded for your arrival. You're being guarded for your inheritance. Take a look at verse 5. Verse 5, who, that's you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You are being guarded for the inheritance that's being guarded. <laughs> There's an interesting turn of words here. So we said that, that in order to receive this mercy, right, that, that according to His mercy, He has... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, right? In order to receive this mercy, you have to have faith. You have to believe. You have to believe in Jesus to receive the gift of grace. That's, that's, like, that's like the condition, right? Because really what it's coming down to is the reason we've been separated from God is because we were determined to be like God. We wanted to, we wanted to be autonomous, to tell our own story, to, to be the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own soul. We, we wanted to be like God. And rejecting God, we also rejected the presence of God and the blessing of God. To believe in Jesus is once again to adopt that place of humility and to trust that God is who, who He says He is and that He's done what He said He's done. That I'm not God, and I needed God to intervene and do for me what I couldn't do for myself. That He is the hero of my story, and I needed Him to substitute Himself in my place so that I could be forgiven. When I believe in Jesus, I receive that gift of grace. I, I exercise that faith, which basically means that I, I come in humility to trust, to be loved, and to learn how to love. To allow God to define who He is and who I am. And it's by faith that I'm brought into Christ. When I believe in Jesus, I am brought into this place of mercy. And in this place of mercy, I am caused to be born again to a living hope. Now, Peter, in this verse, is saying to receive the inheritance, you have to keep that faith. Faith is the condition of entering into the blessing, and faith is the condition of receiving your inheritance. Now, this creates a bit of a problem. If we're simply reading these words in that way, because what that does is it seems to turn faith into a work. 
It's something I have to do. It's something I have to keep, right? God is keeping an inheritance secure for me as long as I'm keeping myself secure in my faith. So so the security of the entire process hinges on my ability to keep the integrity of my faith, which then creates a crisis for my soul. Because on my best day, I'm not 100% sure I believe all things fully. I am like the disciple who says, I believe, help my unbelief. So how do you know if you've believed enough? How do you know if you're persuaded enough? How do you know if your faith is secure enough? This is where Peter's words here are subtle but powerful. We need to pay attention to exactly what he's saying. Because what he's saying is that you're being guarded by his power through your faith. You're being guarded by his power through your faith. His power is being exercised through your faith. What that means is that God is guarding your faith. You're not guarding yourself with your faith. God is guarding you through your faith. God is exercising His power in strengthening your faith so that you can be secure for the inheritance that He is keeping secure for you. In guarding your faith, He's guarding your soul. The night that Jesus was going to be betrayed, He met with His disciples and He he said to them, Man, tonight's going to be a bad night. The shepherd's going to be struck. You guys are going to scatter. And then he looked at Peter specifically and said, Peter, Satan wants you. He wants to sift you like wheat. A couple weeks ago, I had somebody come up to me and ask me, Steve, what does that mean? I'm like, I have no idea, but it sounds bad. Right? (laughs) I'm going to be sifted by anybody. I don't want it to be Satan. You know what I'm saying? Like sifted like, that just sounds bad. Now, what's interesting is what Jesus says after that. He says, Peter, I've prayed for you. Specifically, what he says is, I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. Jesus didn't pray that he wouldn't wouldn't be tested. Jesus didn't pray that he wouldn't suffer. Jesus didn't pray that he wouldn't fail. Jesus prayed that his faith would be protected. Peter was guarded by the power of God because God guarded his faith even when he failed. Listen, this is the power of a living hope. This is the power of a living hope. We look back, and no matter what we have behind us, what guilt, what shame, what we've done, what, how we've betrayed others, or what we've had done to us, how others have betrayed us, we look back and we see great mercy. Because the God of mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope. He, in, in the death and resurrection of His Son, extended us a mercy we could never earn or deserve. And when we look ahead, We see this blessing, this blessing of his inheritance, this blessing of identity, this blessing of of being in the family of God, fully adopted and fully absorbed into this beautiful community. 
It is a blessing kept secure for us even as we're being kept secure for it. So you guys, this is Peter's invitation to us. See life through this living hope. See life through this living hope. This isn't the the power of positive thinking. The power of positive thinking is, is, I believe, a ripoff of the gospel. (laughs) The power of positive thinking says, basically, just think positive thoughts and then good things will happen in your life. If you can just stay positive, then, then you'll create this positive vibe in your life and all these good things will happen. Well, here's what's ironic is there's actually a little bit of truth in that. The power of positive thinking is basically believe it to be true even if it's not, right? Convince yourself it's true even if you don't think it is. We're being told to focus on what's true. We're, we're told to interpret our present reality through a, a historical event, Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, it completely transforms how I see my past and how I see my future and how I process my present. I have a living hope. And as a living hope, it is ever with me and ever ever adapting to my present situation and ever leading me to the anticipation of good. I think this is especially powerful when we remember that Peter is writing to a suffering community, right? Peter is writing to these people that are living in the diaspora. They are refugees. They've been pushed out from their homes. They've been pushed out from their, from their home culture, from their places of security. They've been pushed out into these places of vulnerability, right? That's who he's writing to, a community that knew disappointment and sorrow. But he's writing to them with a pastoral, shepherding heart that meets them in their sorrow and calls them to their hope. All right, so I want you to catch this. Last week we talked about how Peter on the, on the beach, Jesus three times said, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, right? And in a sense, what he was saying was, Peter, I, I want you to minister to others in the same way I'm now ministering to you. I, I want you to work from this place of pain so that you can meet other people in their pain. So that you can have an emotional depth that allows you to meet people in their emotional depth, in the dark places of their souls, in those moments of difficulty and pain. So you're not just going to show up with advice on how to fix things or solutions or, or, or empty um, phrases that, that really don't help anything. Man, You're going to be able to meet people and see them face-to-face, eye-to-eye, in their suffering, but in their suffering, call them to this better place I'm not taking you. Peter is meeting them in their place of suffering, in their pain, while simultaneously pointing them to their common hope. He isn't just being a cheerleader for Jesus, throwing out pithy sayings. Oh, yeah, man, I'm too bad. That's, that's so bad. You know, but God is still good. God can do anything, you know. So let's get over it. Let's be happy. Kumbaya. Sing praise to Jesus. Come on. Right. Now, he's, he's, he's meeting him in his, in meeting them in their pain. But in that pain, he's saying, look, this hurts, and it's going to keep hurting. You're in the dispersion. You are refugees. You're in this place of vulnerability. That is real. That sucks. It hurts. But in this place of pain, don't lose sight of your hope. 
in the reality of your suffering, never lose sight of the fact that you still have a living hope because the worst news is never the last news. And the greatest disappointment is never as great as a living hope. Filter your reality, your current experience through this historical truth. Jesus rose from the dead. And because he did, it can inspire your soul to find light in the darkness, to, to recenter. As you look back and you see mercy and you look forward and you see blessing. You know, when Peter had a bad day, he would remember Jesus rose from the dead. Like, what a vivid memory. Yeah? Like, like, he would remember running into that tomb and the grave clothes were empty. Do you think that, that lightened his worst day? When someone was rude to him, didn't give him the respect that he thought he deserved, when he faced financial challenges, downturns in the economy, when, when he was misunderstood or misrepresented, he would remember Jesus came back from the dead. When he was beaten and imprisoned, you could find him in his cell singing at midnight. You know why? Because even as the blood was running from his broken nose and his eyes were watering from the pain, Jesus rose from the dead. That's the power of a living hope. And when the enemy brought back the memories of his betrayal of Jesus and sought to sift him like wheat, to trap him in his condemnation, Peter remembered, Jesus rose from the dead. I look back, I see mercy. I look ahead, I see blessing. The greatest disappointment then becomes swallowed up in a greater expectation. And our sorrows are put in a context that allows us to see that God is still good in spite of what hurts. Because Jesus came back from the dead and Jesus is coming back for me. Listen, followers of Jesus, how present is this hope to your reality? How present is the living hope of the resurrection to your understanding of your story? How present is the living hope of the resurrection in your marriage? How, how present is the living hope of the resurrection in, in your relationship with your children and with your job, with your employer, with yourself? How present is, is the hope of the resurrection, both in putting in context the good things you're looking forward to, to keep them from becoming gods, and the bad things you're dealing with to keep them from becoming despair. You have a living hope. You've received mercy. You have an inheritance right now. It is being guarded for you, and you are being guarded for it. You have a living hope because Jesus was raised from the dead.
Now we've got to let that hope sink in. We've got to let that hope, man, just marinate and soften our hearts and inspire our vision. If we're going to focus on a ball <laughs> like Bear, let's make it a living hope. A hope that doesn't disappoint. A hope that doesn't lead astray. A hope that never sets us up for failure. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. You guys, I'm going to put some reflection questions up on the screen. Create some space. I ask you to pray. Allow God to speak to your heart. We're going to share communion. We'll do that in a moment. But let me just pray for us as we go into a time of response. Father, I thank you that you are the giver of hope. That the the gospel is this incredible message of what's been done on our behalf. Not what we need to do, but what you have done. That we might be one, that we might be forgiven, that we might be cleansed and set free. It is the message of you and the glory of your humility, stepping into the ruin of our sin that we might receive mercy. Lord, I pray that this love would soften our hearts. I pray that you would would free us to enjoy the lesser hopes without making the lesser hopes our gods to endure the pain and the suffering that is, that is just necessary and part of this broken life without being crushed. That we might be lit up with the living hope of the gospel. God, you are so good. So merciful. So loving. So patient. As we turn this way and that way, looking to things that aren't you, asking them to do for us what only you can do, God, I thank you that you patiently call us back. Awaken our hearts, Spirit, to the beauty of Jesus. Awaken our hearts to the power of resurrection. Awaken our hearts to the overwhelming debt of love we owe for the mercy we received and awaken our hearts to the overwhelming blessing of goodness that is laid up for us even now. Glorify yourself in us. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.